Do you celebrate Orthodox Easter? Uh, yeah, I guess. Just... I mean, I'm not massively religious. Uh, but as I, yeah, as I just said a minute ago, I, I mean, I mean, I, I guess we, we celebrate as a family, as a, you know, almost like a habit. I guess my mom go, would, would go to church and, you know, with the, with the Pascas, with the kind of leavened breads and eggs and stuff and get them, uh, whatever, what's the, what's the expression in English when you, um. I don't know, blessed. Yeah, blessed, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so she'd do that. But, um, uh. Because we're not, because uh, I'm not going to Ukraine this year. I don't think I'm going to celebrate it. To be honest with you, I've done the English one just now. Okay. My okay. my son my yeah. son was of school, and then we just invited people over and had some dumplings yesterday. Actually, it wasn't very oh. eastery, but it was delicious. Nice. Yeah, I was just wondering. Not, I mean, I also like. I think I don't know. I celebrate more. I think a lot of people celebrate more culturally and I have a lot of friends in Russia that celebrate like you know like as opposed to religiously like they don't go to church but they celebrate with like a family yeah, yeah. meal and it's a nice sitting around celebration and... of spring almost which it probably was before Christianity anyway so it's yeah it's cool Yeah definitely does the Ukrainian tradition have that um same little like tvorog cake thing Oh um yeah, well, I I think some people do it. We've never done it, so to me, it's completely kind of um, I don't know. I associate it with with Russia more, but I think people in Ukraine do it. Uh, what what okay. we 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 make what we call Pascha is the kind of leavened panettone style bread, I guess, right. and that's what we'd make. So you know, when I was writing, when I wrote the recipe for 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 it for the Easter bread for the Pascha for Mamushka. Um, I got my um, friend uh, to test it. And of course, I've given her my auntie's kind of original uh, recipe. And basically, she put the dough in the fridge and then in the biggest container that she had. And then she got up the next day, like opened the door and all of that. I mean, there was such a big volume and it was so like lively. <laughs> it literally crawled out of the bowl and just like <laughs> crawled all over the fridge and all the like nooks and crannies and the shelves. It was hilarious. She was like, this is enough dough for like a whole bakery. <laughs> this is not a home. Oh this is not a home recipe. I'm like, well, it is actually because we do make loads. Like we'd make at least 15 big ones. Uh, and then you'd give them away, wow. and then hey, it's quite, it's quite nice, like uh, to to have toasted, I guess, even if you have an excess. But they would somehow get eaten. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <That's amazing. laughs> like, but yeah, the mo- monster d- Easter dough. Yeah. From New York. And New York. This is Saturday night. <laughs> this, this is... It's okay. It was kind of funny. To me. This is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. And I'm Seth. And we're interviewing somebody today who we've wanted to interview for a very long time. So very exciting. Yay! Our special guest is Olia Hercules, who is a chef and author of to coming on three cookbooks and is originally from Ukraine but is now based in London. Um, yeah, we're really excited to talk to her and hear about her delicious recipes and stories. 
Delicious stories. Okay. So I'm Olia Hercules. Um, I'm a chef and food writer from um, London. Well, I live in London, but I'm from Ukraine. And I wrote two cookbooks to date, Mamushka and Caucasus, and finishing my third one called Summer Kitchen. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to ask about... Oh, I want to ask about your cookbook, Caucasus, because, um, yeah. so it's called Caucasus, a culinary journey through Georgia, Azerbaijan and beyond. Uh-huh. And yeah. And in the description, in the description for Mamushka on your site, it says that that book celebrates your family recipes and from Ukraine, Moldova to Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan. And I was wondering, like, yeah. so I'm imagining you have also a family connection to the Caucasus or... If not, I mean, yeah. can you talk about, yeah, can you talk about that and, and just yeah. more generally the process yeah, yeah. of writing that, that cookbook, Caucasus? Yeah, of course. Uh, so basically my dad, so by blood, I don't, I don't have any kind of Caucasian blood or anything, but my, um, my dad's got an auntie. So his, his uncle was married to an Armenian woman, basically. So a Ukrainian, uh, married an Armenian woman, uh, but they actually grew, uh, but they actually lived in Baku in Azerbaijan. Uh, and had like, and her family had a place in Karabakh. Um, and basically, when my dad was twelve or a little bit younger, his parents got divorced, and uh, it was like super intense. So they they basically uh, sent him to Baku to stay with his uncle and and uh, his Armenian auntie. So he kind of spent some time there. Oh, and then yeah, and then and then that whole the troubles kind of with between the you know, the war started between Azerbaijan and Armenia and they had to, uh, they they went, they left and then they moved to Kiev eventually. But before that, whilst they were still there, we all traveled basically. In a, on the whim, my parents decided to just, to just go and visit our family in Baku. So we, we went in like this really old Jiguli. I was only three years old or something and my brother was like uh, 11, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. And we just drove from the south of Ukraine all the way and I have like I have some some memories and loads of photographs and stuff, and I just always wanted to uh, to go back in the kind of in a similar way, like to drive through it. And then um, and then once I wrote Mamushka, actually, so I would always come and stay with my half Armenian, half Ukrainian aunt in Kiev. So the ones so, so mm-hmm. the, since they moved, and you know, like because I'm from the south of Ukraine, and to get to the south of Ukraine, I'd have to take a train from Kiev, like a twelve year. 12, 12 hour like sleeper train from Kiev to Sahovka to Kirton. But every time I would stop at this auntie, and you know, she'd give me basically like massive bags with like a whole roasted chicken and <laughs> these Armenian vegetables and all of these are the different Armenian Azerbaijani like flatbreads and all of this food, like two heavy bags. It's like, I'm only going, like, it's, I'm going to be sleepy most of the night. I'm just going to eat uh, <laughs> one hour before I go to sleep. But yeah, so much food. And then we just kind of uh, sat down one day and I recorded her talking for about two hours. She was just telling me about her uh, childhood growing up in Baku and also in Karabakh, obviously, because she went um, there to their family home uh, that they had there. And uh, it was just so fascinating. It just completely, yeah, I was just completely uh, enchanted by by her by her stories, really. And I decided to go and... Um, Perhaps I like. I really want to go with my brother and find her her flat, like the place where we traveled to all mm-hmm. of the like in nineteen eighties. 
Uh, and also, I really want to go to Karabakh, but uh, sadly, by that time that the book was, you know, happening and we had to travel, it was too dangerous. They, they started shooting there again and stuff. Sad, really. And um, yeah, but even even though and even though she was Armenian, she actually never really she's never been to Armenia. Really, she Azerbaijan was kind of her home. So my main, so mainly, I traveled all around Georgia and Azerbaijan. I couldn't go to Armenia because. Uh, by having gone to Azerbaijan, they wouldn't have let me through because I had mm-hmm. an Azerbaijani stamp and my British passport. Is that like a rule? Like like anybody from any country, if they go to Azerbaijan, they won't let you go to Armenia? I think I, can, I think it can go either way. I think it, it, it is kind of possible, but it's there's a big risk. And uh, at that point, I don't I, I just didn't think that they would. They would just like give, um, yeah, give you maybe a hard time. Yeah. They wouldn't necessarily yeah. let you in, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yes. So, me and my brother went for like 25 days, almost a month. Uh, and half of it was spent uh, kind of traveling, taking all of these marshrutkas, you know, around, well, as much Georgia as we could cover, wow. um, given the, the time and the money. And then we went to Azerbaijan by train. And we also traveled around there. Um, and then, yeah, and then the just kind of started writing the book and then me and um, the photographer Elena Hedwig we traveled we did the same trip basically just a little bit shorter because we were both kind of single moms at the time so we needed to do it as quick as possible yeah uh so it was the two of us yeah and then we we so we shot the book and um collected a little bit more more recipes and oh it was wonderful it was an amazing experience what was the process of collecting recipes? Just talking to people, or you like would specifically go to certain types of restaurants? Uh, no, no, I I really wanted to. Um, there were a couple of restaurants, amazing restaurants that we went to, and I collected some recipes from there. But mostly, it was just uh, normal people. Well, I say normal. I mean, all those women were incredible. So I I just put before my recce trip, I've put up a thing on Facebook. I think asking saying. Uh, dear Georgian friends or anyone who's got Georgian friends, could you put me in touch with someone interesting in in Georgia? Uh, and it really snowballed. So one person kind of said, yes, I know someone. And then um, it was actually an organization who who do like slow food in, mm-hmm. in, in Georgia. They're like some of the people who, who set it up. And, um, and through them, actually, we met loads of amazing people who, you know, not only knew Georgian food but also kind of cared about reviving some of the stuff that's been lost during the soviet uh, era including winemakers and stuff but um also like ancient grains and things that really have fallen out of um not favor but yeah have just been forgotten mm. so it was really interesting to 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 see to meet those people mostly women but some men as well and and to eat the food you know like uh, in the kaheti uh, no sorry it wasn't kaheti it was uh, kazbegi this woman just had this incredible buffalo butter at home. And, oh. you know, they make it on a regular basis. It's just like, here's some buffalo butter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could have eaten it like cheese. It was so delicious. Oh, oh it was amazing. And then, you know, everybody would just casually kind of show you the uh, big barrels of brine with the suluguni and whatever else, you know, cheese just bobbing around. Oh, wow. <sighs> And yeah, it was just completely fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, so yeah, so they and so generous. Like people were really generous with um, with giving out recipes and um, and the stories and and actually knowledge. You know, passing on knowledge. I've learned how to make king kali and and these loads of 
different types of kachapuri and you name it, mm. you know, people are just so lovely. Awesome. That sounds yeah. like an amazing we trip. We love Georgian food. <laughs> um, oh, it's uh, but it's it's beyond like what the stuff that you actually find there. I think I bet yeah. Because in, in London, people people ask me they're like, oh, are there any amazing places in London to go and eat Georgian food? And I mean, there are there are some restaurants, but I don't know. It's just kind of it really needs to be seasonal, amazing produce for it to really blow your mind. I think mm-hmm. anyone can make a walnut paste, and you know stuff some aubergines with it and and it's delicious even made in london and whatever and you can make incredible georgian food here as well but i think you really have to pay attention to ingredients and get them seasonally and get the best quality that you can get whether you're in new york or london or whatever because that kind of cuisine really relies on those mind-blowing ingredients basically was there some some dish that you could name as an example of something that's like not on the sort of typical Georgian restaurant menu, like not hinkali, hachapuri, those little, I don't know, not yeah, the, yeah, lobio or something. Uh, um, from Georgian cuisine, uh, or just something that surprised you? Yeah, like the like the butter, but like a a dish that you hadn't, I don't know, you hadn't heard of or something before. Was there something like that? Oh yeah, there were really there were quite a few. Um, but I, I guess some of the stuff. I mean, that's very specific to Georgia, and you can't really find it here. But they do. They did have. They did use so many foraging ingredients. It, it was it was really interesting to see. You know, you'd go to a, just a normal kind of food market, and they they had this um, wild kind of sour, spindly kind of I can't even like describe it like little shoots that they call ekala you know what they're similar to have you seen uh, grapevines you know that the, when they have those kind of like twirly almost like pig's tails yeah yeah oh. so that's that's what that's what it was kind of thing like and and then they would dress it in this kind of a loose baje sauce which is uh yeah like really loosely ground walnuts with a bit of stock or something you know to, to loosen it up and mm. that was so delicious um I, I, if I think of something else, I, I will, yeah, I will mention it. There were more kind of surprising Azerbaijani dishes for me, I think, that I, because even though my my auntie obviously cooks and, um, you know, and I've had that food my whole life, but some of the stuff was really unusual, especially when we went to um, this area called Lenkaran, which is by Iranian border. Um, there were some really, really interesting dishes there. Like, for example, a very simple one. But one of my most favorite dishes in the book is called Sirdakh. Uh, and it's, um, if you use baby aubergines, but you can use normal aubergines, um, cooked down with loads and loads of like sliced garlic and uh, tomatoes and um, clarified butter. So for mm-hmm. me, kind of like aubergine, buttery aubergine wasn't really a thing that I was used to. And it was only pretty much just these three four ingredients, you know, clarified butter, aubergine, tomato, like great tomatoes, and loads and loads of sliced garlic, which kind of mellowed, and wasn't like harsh garlic. It was just like a, oh, it was just an incredible mm. dish, and served with loads of herbs and stuff. It was, just, I think, it's one of my favorites now. Um, what else? Um, yeah, they eat uh, dried fish and watermelon. Uh, with bread as well, like with flatbread together, which I found, yeah, 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 which I found really interesting. And crazily, in Ukraine, like I grew up watching my parents and my grandparents eating watermelon with bread, and I always found it really weird. <laughs> Even being like from Ukraine, I was just like, why would you do that? I really don't get it. 
but and then they take it to the kind of next level. I mean, I guess it, it works like salty, salty fish, sweet, juicy. You know, almost like a watermelon salad makes sense with olives and mm. a red onion and, you know, and feta or something, you know, like mm. a Greek, Greek style kind of. I don't know. Yeah, it kind of works with fish. I, did, I, I tried it. I liked it. Wow. So yeah. I got, but I, but I adapted that recipe. So I thought, mm, how can I make it work? like you know uh, out of this beautiful place because uh, that's when it kind of like seemed that it really worked just to, together with the environment so I uh, so I kind of just um, made some croutons uh, you know kind of dried and roasted in uh, a little bit of anchovy oil with a, with a bit of anchovy and kind of put that through a watermelon salad Mm, with okay. onion and stuff and it worked you know it, it worked but I, I like that kind of fish and watermelon combination was really interesting to me but yeah there were quite quite a few I'm sure there were loads in Georgia as well I just kind of kind of, oh yes no wait hold, hold on yeah there's a really great one I remember the Georgian one uh called um charkali and it's um it's a beetroot salad that you it's beetroot basically either boiled and skins and then peeled and chopped or, I mean, you can roast it, which is not conventional, but um, I actually prefer the boiled version. But you dress it in skimali, which is um, this amazing kind of sour, spicy plum sauce. So beetroot and dark fruit in general go so well mm. together. And that for, for me, that was just an incredible, incredible thing. And they serve it with this fantastic herb they called ombala. And I think it's called, uh, it's a type of mint, but, well... It doesn't look like mint quite, and it's got this really interesting flavor, almost like marjoram and mint had a you know love child, and that's mm-hmm. what that herb kind of tastes like. So that with um, with the beetroot and the plums is really uh, yeah amazing an amazing combination. When you're like taking a recipe, for example, the watermelon and flatbread and dried fish, and and adapting it for maybe like a more Western audience or for your cookbook. Does that to you, I'm curious, like, does that feel like a natural process to you in the way that you cook? Or is it really, um, like, diligent or, like, really logical in that you're like, okay, these are the things that appeal to this type of audience? No, I think everything, like, every recipe did progress naturally uh, in the sense that, you know, I would come home and I'd, I'd open my notes and I'd read through things. And, and yeah, some recipes absolutely do not need any meddling whatsoever. And I try to do the least possible. But then if there is something like, you know, the dried fish and watermelon, I'm like, oh, I really want to tell people about it. And I want to, you know, get them interested and maybe they can go to Azerbaijan and, and try the original dish if they're there. And that's what, where it would really kind of shine and work. But how can I talk about it in a way and maybe get people interested in the flavor combinations Um, and in that case and in that case I just think oh you know I'll just do this I'll just give this a go but it's never labored if you know what I mean like I'm never like okay I need to think and adapt every single recipe that I find Mm -hmm. or you know on the on on the contrary I try to do the least possible At, at the same time I do want to talk about dishes that seem a little bit weird or or unusual and um, something that might not even appeal maybe to all everyone in the Western audience, but I still think it's important to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And I always try to find a way to do it. What language did you speak in Georgia? I spoke Russian. Okay. And most people spoke Russian? 
Uh, yeah, uh, qu- quite a like the older generation. Uh, the older generations definitely did right. in some places. Some places, not even the, the older generation spoke very, uh, Russian, uh, and some younger people actually spoke in English hmm. with. Because they are the, the younger yeah. generations don't speak Russian that that well anymore that yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was. Um, so that it, it definitely having Russian made it a lot easier. Uh, it made it more accessible and you know made it easier to 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 connect in many ways actually. Yeah. No, I imagine, especially with the older generation, which is like. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The cooks. With the treasures. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to ask a little bit about uh, more Ukraine based maybe um, recipes and food. And one of my questions is this, this topic we talked about with um, your friend, Alisa Tomashkina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, who's also a cook book yeah. writer <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um yeah so she she had she mentioned this term this concept of like phantom borscht and how like borscht is something mm-hmm. that you know has all these different permutations everywhere you go or like it can be it's not even like there's a sort of country specific or regional specific permutation it, it can come down to like every family in a way yeah um, how they how people make borscht so i was wondering I know you have a recipe for I think it you for Ukrainian borscht in in mamushka, and I was wondering if you yeah. could describe it and, and maybe talk about how it stands out from other recipes you've known, seen, or something. Uh yeah, um, I I think Alisa is right, and actually I co- I cooked her borscht from Sultan Time the other day. It's absolutely delicious, <laughs> and I love the way, and I love the way that her the you know it it still it was familiar it was like oh this is definitely a borscht mm-hmm. but at the same time it was very much its own thing like the the phantom borscht is definitely <laughs> <laughs> something that i can relate to in a way uh my my mom my family's borscht it comes from my mom's mom i suppose um she's kind of from the south southwestern ukraine near moldova ish originally but um how it's different, it's really definitely meaty, the way that we make it. And, you know, you'd use, like, beef, I think, growing up, beef was the the, the, the type of meat that we cooked borscht with most uh, because it was my mom's favorite, I think. So it would be, like, oh, the one that I give in Mamushka has, is made with uh, oxtail. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite rich, kind of viscous, uh mm-hmm. Uh, dish and uh, my grandma used to say you know you should be able to stick kind of like a spoon in and it should stand up right so it's almost wow. kind of in like a pudding <laughs> yeah. oh that. yeah 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 wow that's I heard that about smetana <laughs> yeah no um like it needs to have so much veg uh yeah. that it needs to be yeah it needs to be quite the story you know yeah um so I definitely follow that uh, you, the way that we did it as well, um, my mom, you know how you have to do this kind of a sofrito thing? I mean, I don't know if in Russia if they do the sofrito bit, but in Ukrainian definitely that's kind of like uh, a thing that we do is that we fry onions and carrots until they're caramelized mm-hmm. to add sweetness to borscht. So that's one thing, but we'd never use oil to do that. My mom would always skim a bit of the fat of the stalk 
uh, of the borscht kind of thing, and then use that fat to cook all, to caramelize your onions mm. and carrots in. So that's kind of like a idiosyncratic thing, I suppose. I don't know if if a lot of other people do it, but it's an interesting kind of way of utilizing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would be, I guess, our thing is pale beetroot. You know, you'd go in my town, in my hometown, you'd go to the uh, market and you'd you'd have borshevoy uh, buryak which means, uh, uh, you know, specific, borscht-specific kind of beetroot. And it would be very pale. So it would almost be like that fancy candy, like Kyocha beetroot that they sell now. I don't know, in New York, I'm sure. In, in London, they have, you know, the candy kind of pink one that doesn't color mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the type, that, yeah, that's the type of beetroot that we'd use. Like, it was, it was almost like a, it, it would be... A criminal in my grandmother's view if borscht was dyed red from beetroot oh. she, she she found it like distasteful if the potatoes would be you know colored that beetroot red she'd be like no this is horrible you have to see each color of each vegetable so actually the borscht would be red from these amazing tomatoes that we had like these pink huge tomatoes and and the the color of the borscht would be like uh you know like ro- dusty rose pink kind of thing. It wouldn't mm. be your deep typical red. like yeah, yeah. deep deep red. No, and you know what? It's funny because now that I'm I'm here in the UK and I I do kind of tend to seek out these really pale beetroots, but there's no point. There's no reason in it apart from in where we are where we are from. Originally, the the soil would have been quite uh, sandy, so beetroots would be uh, that's something that i've read i don't know how true that is but apparently due to the soil the the beetroots that would naturally occur where i'm from are pale so that's how this pale bush would you know kind of came about and uh and for some reason like aesthetically my grandma also took it as a, a thing desirable in bush but of course now having done so much research on the subject you know every bush is valid however red and like <laughs> crimson red but like it doesn't matter it's uh, yeah but very very different recipes everywhere so so many i've counted i think with my research i've counted like up to 50 60 ingredients kind of variations that you can have wow. in borscht wow. wow yeah it's great depending on where you are and uh, and of course in caucasus even they'd make borscht but they would add something like uh, i don't know like bashed chili and coriander or something mm. and it, and that's also fine because that's what they their parents would find hanging around the house and you know why not just yeah it's really interesting it is such a yeah such a good example of like the sort of there's this false i think conception that something like like borscht is like a typical i don't know russian food or soviet food or ukrainian food and then yeah. it's like oh no it's really ukrainian and there's this like sort of yeah yeah point. yeah it's like the, but it's the like, hummus of the eastern right. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and <laughs> it really is something yeah yeah that holds all of those things within it which is cool i, w- I would love to be yeah. able to like i don't know do like a borscht taste test where you get to taste a bunch of different kinds yeah that would be fun like a borscht, borscht pie. like make a bunch <laughs> everybody of different... brings a small yeah, yeah. A, small, a small uh pot of borscht yeah. <laughs> and then you do a tasting yeah, yeah and uh, but you know what like having known my recipe for borscht you know my family's recipe for borscht and then coming across polish ones and whatever like one of the most interesting ones that i found was actually in poltava in central ukraine and it's during my research for my third cookbook which is summer kitchen and it's all kind of regional ukrainian cuisine so went to poltava and tried this borscht and it was just incredible they use these um 
smoked dried pears that yes. they infuse the the stock with, and it, it, oh, it's just incredible. But the way that they make those those, those pears is even more interesting. So they're not like conventionally smoked. You know how you have peach, so peach. You know we have we have a very similar thing, like a masonry oven yeah. almost that they yeah. have where it's they cook yeah. cook and uh, take baths in and sleep on and whatever. <laughs> so. Uh, back in the day, and I, I, I guess they still do it that way. Uh, some families, you, um, you take like you know, you have a glass of pears in September, and then you would uh, take them whole and put them on a, you know, a tray of some sort, and put it in the in the oven at the end of the day. So you know when the natural heat would be dying down from all of the wood burning and stuff. So there would be this perfect temperature, and then you put it in, and then overnight it would obviously like completely um, go off the, the heat, but you would repeat this process every day for, I, I think, seven days or something like that. And at the end, you have these whole pairs that look like almost black, like really mm. deep color. And they would be like shriveled up and beautiful and essentially dried and smoked at the same time. Whoa, but it would happen yeah. because you'd put them in, in, in at the end of the of the day. And then, yeah, and then you use them to infuse your meaty borscht uh, stock. Wow. And I guess in the, in the past, they would have added it during winter times to, to add nutritional value really but now I mean like loads of restaurants in Kiev like Kanapa in Kiev uh, does this amazing borscht with the smoked pears and you know it translates as a real kind of chefy dish in a way right. whereas really right. it's, it's just peasant food but it's cool, cool peasant food yeah wow sounds really good yeah um, you, you've been like alluding to people in your family who were really good cooks as you were growing up is, is there somebody in particular that's influenced you or particular dishes they made uh that that you like still draw upon now or that you reference a lot it's my mom it's my mom and my mom's family that are even though my, my dad is an amazing cook as well but I think mostly my mom and but not when I was little that's the thing I I hated cooking like I, I liked eating but I was I was resisting it so much I was like I'm not cooking I'm just not interested mm. to the point where my dad had to kind of force me you know it'd be like every Sunday you're cooking with your mom like that's it this is the rule and I was nah, just burning stuff all the time and really not kind of into it it was only in my early 20s that I um, like when I was 19 and went to Italy I think I really became interested and since then you know I've come since then I became a chef and well trained to be a chef and stuff and then I would come back home and almost you know just learn everything from my mom and during the the actual kind of collecting and testing the recipes for mamushka, that's when we really kind of bonded and cooked together so much, me, my mom, and my auntie. So, because, you know, for the book, they just said, oh, we want a hundred of a hundred recipes that you grew up with that are really, really kind of dear to you that me, and that have an amazing story or something or an interesting story. So we sat down and uh, me, my mom, and my auntie over Skype like this, and just kind of like came up with a hundred dishes, Whoa. you know. I, I did my I did my proposal for the book and everything. And then once that all happened, and I went I went back to Ukraine and with my little kind of handheld uh, with my uh, scales and like measuring spoons and things. And my mom and auntie would be like, "Get away with those! What? <laughs> this is not how we cook." <laughs> I'd be like, "I know, I know. You know, of course you should be like, you know, use your instincts and everything." But people in the in the UK or America, they don't know how to make this virtuta dish or whatever you crazy thing you're making, mom. You know, you, we gotta take measurements. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, that was a month when I really kind of, I think we, yeah, she passed on all the knowledge and my auntie as well, who's an incredible cook. And um, some of the dishes definitely, so borscht is the first one in the book and that's one of the, one of the favorites um, and has become a, like a family favorite. Like, you know, my, my son loves it. Mm. which uh makes makes me really happy but then some really some unconventional uh dishes maybe not every ukrainian even family knows so the the noodly what we call noodly uh some people call them strudly so uh, that's just my grandma's um something that my grandma made and i, I think it's more uh popular around the odessa kind of region there but uh yeah quite a regional dish but it's so delicious like kefir dough dumplings that you cook that you like plonk on top of this like rib pork rib stew Whoa. so then the 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 the, bot, the bottoms kind of like get soaked by the by the by the stew kind of juices and the tops just remain like almost like chinese buns you know like really steamed so mm. yeah such a such an amazing dish uh, yeah wow loads all of all of the all of the recipes i think in mamushka in my first cookbook are have some kind of a you know really important uh like a big importance kind of attached to it another one would be the i think the noodles so they're kind of handmade handmade egg noodles and then mm. we have these like spe- special um cast iron uh pots like pans that you can put a whole duck or goose in and cover it so it's like in the shape that kind of is is, is good for for, for that oh, okay. <laughs> so, you, so, you, so you yeah like yeah like an oval kind of like tall cast iron pan and then you'd add just a tiny splash of water to, to get things going and salt and pepper and that's it and you cover it and you just leave that the duck to cook so it kind of like releases all the fat and juices and almost confies in its own juices uh and then you pull the duck apart and then you just you stir all of the duck meat and the fat and all of the juices through these homemade noodles and that's it it's just like duck it's juices and noodles and it's one of my most favorite dishes ever wow yeah it's like a a festive thing that we do and i think that yeah learning how to make that one was uh even though it sounds simple but it was very important yeah i'm so glad that i got to do that um Sorry, I'm just fantasizing about food. We haven't eaten breakfast yet, so it's a little Um I'm I was curious about so okay, so you're from, as you've been saying, southern Ukraine, um, mm-hmm. the town of Kakovka. Kakovka, yeah. Kakovka. Um uh-huh, and w- w- is that is that like a pretty small town? Yeah, like 50,000 people, basically. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, you can walk around it in uh, in like an hour, I think, and then everybody knows each other kind of thing. Okay. And so when you were doing research for Mamushka, where, what other parts of Ukraine? You, you mentioned Poltava and um, Kiev. Oh, but, oh so, yeah. yeah, so, no, so for Mamushka, I didn't, it was literally, I just went home and it, they were all family recipes. So actually, it was the easiest oh, book okay, to write, okay. to be honest with you. I pretty much wrote it in about four months. It was just there, you know? Right. Uh, but for this, for the third one, um, yeah, I traveled. Oh, sorry. Yeah, West- yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's for the third one. For Summer Kitchens, I traveled, again, uh, my area, obviously, Odessa and um, the Moldovan and Romanian borders. I wanted to go to Crimea, but that wasn't possible, sadly, uh, because of the annexation. And it was just like, it just seemed like a right palaver, sort of like the Azerbaijan uh, situation before. 
and then um and then we went to western ukraine uh, uh you know on the border with hungary and and then we went to the belarusian belarus uh, border up north and then central ukraine so i tried to cover as much as kind of my budget and time would allow me uh but quite a few regions definitely definitely all around the border and central just to see how you know just to to discover all of these regional recipes and to see if the summer kitchen is a phenom- phenomenon really a thing and and yeah it was it was amazing to see that it that it really was to the summer kitchen being like a separate set of recipes for the summer or what do you mean no okay so in in ukraine we have this um this structure uh, I, I call it a structure i mean it's it's either made out of brick uh clay or wood depending on the area in ukraine and it's so it's it's almost like a miniature house you know it's just like a one room house but it's a but there's a kitchen inside oh, it's just okay, a kitchen okay. but it's like a separate little building and the way that they kind of came about there was always some kind of a version of it in ukraine but then after the second world war when people started living a little you know a little when they kind of recovered from the war and everything a, a, a couple would get married and they would build this one bedroom structure and live in it while they build their bigger house and like mm. you know uh plant their orchard and vegetables and whatever so it was like a central like a little thing that they would start their life in and then once they move into the bigger house that would become the summer kitchen and because it was so hot during the sum during summertime there were no air cons and then you'd obviously have to conserve you know preserve all of the glut in september so you'd have like hundreds of jars and you'd be fermenting and making jams and whatnot so this was your hub like your whole family like all of the cooking would move into this summer kitchen essentially so it's different from those you know the outside kind of barbecue things that you have in other countries it's really like a very specific thing that we we had in ukraine and i think other countries in ex-soviet countries have uh, something similar but yeah that was my kind of mission to see if people are demolishing them or are they, are they still around are people using them how how they differ from area to area region to region and uh, to collect the recipes basically that kind of came out of it so looking at ukraine's diversity through this one kind of mini institution of ukrainian culinary tradition are are people still actively building summer kitchens or most of the structures are like uh left over yeah I, well it's sad to see so in my hometown like loads of people especially young younger people they just want to be modern i suppose and then they're like oh we can afford an aircon now why do we need a summer kitchen so they would either like turn it into a dog kennel or or a warehouse you know just like storage room or demolish it which made me feel so sad but in villages they they definitely still exist and people still build them um and i don't know yeah i really hope that they don't go completely because they are apart from Think, like I don't want to be also to romanticize it too much. Obviously, they would. Uh, they also have like a very practical kind of function, but I don't know. They're just beautiful things. Really, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's nostalgia speaking as well. But um, yeah, they're closer to your allotment, so it's all kind of linked to growing your your own vegetables and things, and yeah, preserving for winter. So. Yeah, I think I guess they are kind of disappearing. So I'm glad that I've documented it all. But I'm hoping that maybe if people see it in Ukraine and kind of try to appreciate what some of the traditions that people think are no longer fashionable or not really relevant. I don't know. 
would you say, I mean, are there examples of how like the structure of the summer kitchen or the existence of the summer kitchen ex- itself like uh, affects recipes? I don't know how to phrase that exactly, but that something that would be cooked in a summer kitchen that wouldn't have arisen had they not had those structures. Yeah, that's an interesting question, I guess. I, You know what? I think they definitely helped with the whole kind of fermentation, that, that kind of preserving tradition to really accelerate it and 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 allow experimentation, I guess, because if you imagine trying to do all of that in a really hot house, like you, you just wouldn't do as much. I'd imagine mm. you just kind of give up and just go like, "Oh, sod it! Like I, I can't. I just can't do this. It's too hot here." And whatever. Those summer kitchens, you know, because you can open every every window and the door and whatever. You really could get stuck in there. Like they would just become covered in these glass jars. And you know, obviously, people would be using, uh, you know, a recipe that somebody would would have given them. But I'm I'm sure people also experimented and just went oh, well, you know, I've got these courgettes and I've got this herb and I've got this and that, so I'm just going to put them together. And I have seen that, you know. Sometimes the recipes would kind of repeat and sometimes you'd be like, oh, this is an interesting one. And she was like, you know, the woman would be like, oh, yeah, I, that's just what I had that day. You know, I had this big bucket of this and this and this and I just stuck it in a brine and then, you know, made it go sour and, and came up with this recipe and this is how I do it now because it's delicious. So I think that continuing and kind of developing that tradition of preserving for winter, that definitely it helped having those structures. Yeah. I realized as you described it, um, that I know somebody with a summer kitchen and, but they have, they have it at their dacha. Like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think in urban, urban situations, that's where you would. So there's, uh, we went to one near Kiev. And and people people obviously live in the city, but right. in their dacha they they have a summer kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, and I always thought of it as I mean, <clears throat> the one my friend who has it, it's not a it's not like brick. It's just like or stone. It's just like a more. It looks like a tiny little house. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. But yeah, and I always thought of it as kind of this like luxury because like a lot of times after a big meal we just like it's just like extra space so we just take the dishes for example like put the dishes in the summer kitchen like oh, we'll get to them later yeah, like yeah. and 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 actually a lot of jars on the ground and a lot of like yeah stuff in yeah. there but a lot of times yeah we just get sent there to like cook stuff because you're in the way like her grandma's cooking in the other kitchen she's like just go to the summer yeah. kitchen and like make the salads <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right. yeah and and, um you know what i did uh, like for the book as well i really hope that the publisher let me keep those um I basically sent out a, a thing on Instagram, actually, out of all places, because quite, quite a few people from Ukraine follow me on there. And I just said, look, if somebody is interested, can, may I please send you like an in, interview question if you have a summer kitchen? And loads of people emailed me and um, and I've sent them my interview questions, you know, one file in Ukrainian and one in English, just in case. And I got loads of replies from Ukrainians in Ukraine and from Ukrainians in Canada, like fifth generation Ukrainians in Canada. Mm-hmm. And and they talk about a similar thing that that basically they which makes me think the tradition is a lot older than what I think mm. because um, their their grandmothers grandfathers would have moved like in the 1920s and 30s but they brought that tradition with them so these Canadian families would grow up and you know speak this archaic Ukrainian 
and uh, but also have the summer kitchen, which completely they didn't even you know know why. That's just something that our parents were like, we must have this here. You know, it's an important part of our culture. Um, so yes, yeah, so loads of people filled out um, answers. You know, answered my interview questions, and I've got got rid of the questions, and I just kind of like weaved it into little essays, almost like love letters to summer kitchens from all wow. these different people. And so yeah, I'm just like fingers crossed. My publisher thinks that they're 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 great kind of pieces of uh, social social history in a way, and maybe just leave some space for them, at least for a few of them. It's so interesting. They, they read so beautifully. I'm really excited yeah. to read them, <laughs> and also I hope so too. Yeah. And also, yeah, I'm excited to ask my friend because I didn't realize that that was something that fit into a larger tradition. I thought it was like their family thing. It's like I don't know. That's cool yeah. to know. Yeah, no, it, it's so interesting. I'm just like, and it's and it's widespread, and it's just like, wow, how people, you know, people in the in the south, for example, you go by to the Moldovan Romanian border, they 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 just have a completely different experience in so many ways from people in Western Ukraine somewhere, but they both have these little structures, except mm. in the south of Ukraine they call it budka, and in the you know in Western Ukraine, oh, of course the word escapes me, but there's another name for it, you know it's. Uh-huh. It's funny. It's an interesting kind of thing, kind of like a the different dumpling or bread that happens simultaneously. At this, you know, <laughs> created in different places just because it's a really good idea. Yeah, I'm wondering also about when you're traveling around Ukraine. Like, can you d- did the did the fact that there's a war and the country's divided did that is that something that um, came up a lot when you talk to people or? Um, like I mean, I imagine it affected your plans, as you already mentioned, Crimea. Yeah. Um, affected your travel plans, but like, would you have gone to parts of eastern Ukraine, or is that something that people like talked about and could ha- like had has an effect on, um, I guess what we think of as like, yeah, Ukrainian oh, food culture. Eastern, yeah. So eastern Ukraine is so interesting and of course i you know i really really wanted to go uh sadly the furthest that i could kind of i was comfortable in going i probably could have gone to Kharkiv, Kharkiv but we didn't have time but we went to Dnipropetrovsk, which is kind of like you know an hour away mm. but um so i couldn't go uh but luckily about four or five people that answered my interview questions or were ukrainians that now live in the UK, but they actually come from Eastern Ukraine, or their grandmothers were from Eastern Ukraine, and mm-hmm. they and they and they gave me some incredible kind of descriptions of what it was like, and you know it made me feel so sad. It, like me and my mom, I, I spoke to my mom, we were just crying because you know they they're no longer there. They have been bombed the hell out of. You know, there's there's no there's none of that. Like. It, this person's childhood memories that this is all that they have now mm-hmm. and but it, it was so it was so gorgeous and like one of the one of the women that answered the questions the young woman she said oh you know her grandma did all of these crazy things like um keeping snake skins in a in a jar and you know this there's like loads of like potions and things that they used to do in summer kitchens They're like a completely different thing that i that i wasn't really familiar with and Whoa. um yeah, it was really cool. Like really interesting recipes, really like different stuff. They put apparently there's a borscht with aubergines in it, which I've I've never heard of before. You know, and again, it just makes me feel so sad that some of those things might be completely lost because well, there's a com- complete mess happening there. Yeah. So um, yeah, it, yeah, it's sad. 
so sadly couldn't go, but uh, so lucky to have those uh, accounts yeah. of uh, people's childhood. And again, it just makes me, yeah, it's just, it's just devastating. There's, yeah, what can you do? Um, yeah, I just was curious if also like, yeah, I mean, it's amazing that it's good that people were able to answer um, and preserve these memories. I'm just at least in writing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Did you but like so did in general, like um, in this process for Summer Kitchen of talking to different people and traveling around, like, would you say like the politics of Ukraine, did, it, did were they involved at all or just like separate from this kind of thing? Uh, I mean, <sighs> politics, we tried, we kind of tried to avoid it as much as possible, I think. But sometimes things would slip through. Like we went to uh, this place called Vilkave, which is people call like Ukrainian Venice, which I, you know, it's, 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 all, it's, been, it's all been built over marshland, like over basically essentially a swamp in the 18th century by these Russian old believers. Oh. Um, so it's this incredible place where people just travel by boat. It's more like a Ukrainian Vietnam than Venice, I'd say. It's like really wild and beautiful. So I really wanted to go and see and uh, you know what's going on there. But when I got to one of the old believers' churches, you know, I mentioned something like, "Oh, I'm writing about Ukraine, and it's different, um, it, you know, Ukrainian cuisine, but it, it, how diverse it is, and about different people that live in Ukraine." who might not necessarily like feel that they're Ukrainian or whatever, you know. And the man was like, well, do you feel Ukrainian? You know, and I was like, <laughs> I don't know. It was, there was, there was a little bit of, um, yeah, like people were just like, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's not, I don't live in Ukraine. I don't know what Ukraine, or I don't know. There was, there were just like a couple of uncomfortable kind of, for me anyway, because I've always felt like I, you know, I grew up in a, in a country kind of called Ukraine. Like that's what my, parents and my grandparents called it I called myself Ukrainian even though my Russian essentially is much better than my Ukrainian you know there's hmm. so much about Ukrainian identity that's really complex so yeah there were a couple of moments like that but overall uh people really you didn't really talk about it I mm-hmm. suppose they didn't really talk about politics yeah uh, which, like I, which I which which I was kind of I was happy about <laughs> yeah I didn't I didn't fancy I didn't fancy taking it there um but yeah, no, it was it was fascinating. It was fascinating to, to see the diversity. I guess you know what the Tatars talked a lot about politics. I met a couple of Tatar families. Uh-huh. Uh, sadly, sadly not in Crimea because, uh, as I, as I said, it was really hard to to make it. And again, I was going there with my husband Joe and with Elena, who who shot Coxis. And I just didn't want to risk anything. Uh, the two days before, because I was so adamant, I was like, "We're going to Crimea," and and two days before they arrested like a British journalist because she wanted to speak to Tata families. And that's what I essentially I wanted to go for. Uh, so I was like, mm, I'm, I'm not going to risk the guy and I'm not going to, we're just not going to risk it. So we didn't go, but we went uh, by the Crimean border kind of like, and spoke to Tata families and they were really, they brought up politics quite a lot and they were quite upset. Yeah. And, uh, that's, and, yeah. Uh, understandably and, and they were like do not go to Crimea I was like really I was like I'm not afraid I'm gonna go they were like no don't they're tapping phones they're, it's it's kind of crazy like just don't do it so we didn't but luckily I yeah well, I, I did get a, a few um Tata recipes uh from these families which is mm. also I feel like we must represent the Tata population also because they're a big part of the Ukrainian territory you know yeah they've definitely. been a, a rich, they've, they've been in Crimea for so long so um 
prior to deportation. So yeah, try to avoid politics, but obviously sometimes it kind of came up. It's inevitable. Right, right. Well, that's what I was wondering. And then again, the same little logistical question. Are you mostly speaking Russian when you're traveling around? No, um, in whatever, wherever, whatever people would speak to me. So if I was, you know, down south and kind of southwest, people spoke mostly Russian. Uh, and then when we went to Western Ukraine, I mean, oh my God, by the <laughs> by the border with uh, Hungary, um, it was quite hard. The the, the dialect is uh, it, it was quite hard for me to understand the Ukrainian that they were speaking actually. But I but I spoke Ukrainian. And even though it is a bit rusty, I I kind of persevered, and by the you know by the end of the week, I was kind of speaking quite fluently. But yeah, so adapting to whoever, whatever whatever people want to speak to me. Okay, I see. Uh, but but I grew up personally in in the south of Ukraine. We grew up speaking Surzhik, which is kind of like a, a a bit of a dialect, kind of a Russian Ukrainian mashup, which is quite weird and doesn't sound <laughs> very eloquent or proper. But you know, yeah, that's that's just how. Um, that's just how we grow up, kind of thing. Even though my grandparents spoke Ukrainian more than Russian, mm-hmm. and then it it got it, it got kind of yeah, whittled out uh, during the Soviet times. Right, and next, and yeah, yeah. You lived in Cyprus be- between the ages tw- of twelve and eighteen. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, twelve and eighteen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, formative, <laughs> formative, formative years. Formative years. Yeah, yeah sure. de- definitely. Yeah. Did you? Like, what were some of the kinds of food you encountered there? I guess I just, I, I guess it's like similar to Greek food. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. And, and also, like, do you still cook dishes from Cyprus now? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, in, oh, it was amazing food. Uh, de- definitely kind of Greek and Turkish influences, uh, uh. both in Cyprus, I would say. But really healthy. I just remember me and my mom, we just, we cooked a lot of Greek food at home, but we just ate really healthily, like loads of grilled seafood and fish and loads of salads obviously like some kind of a greek salad um loads of baked like vegetable dishes pulses uh it was beautiful i really loved i really loved the food there and now um there are actually uh, there's a really really good uh, cookbook that's just come out called taverna um and it's um it's all about greek cypriot food and that's mm. fantastic so i used uh kind of used one of the recipes yesterday to cook a spanakopita from the book. So, you know, uh, yeah, definitely still cooking uh, Cypriot, Greek Cypriot food and kiftedes and all these kind of things. Um, absolutely delicious. I really miss it, actually. Were there a lot of uh, other Ukrainian people in Cyprus at the time? Yeah, loads. Uh, loads of Ukrainians, loads of Russians. I guess it was quite easy to get like a pink slip, basically, to, to settle in Cyprus at the time. Uh, that's why quite there was a huge, huge diaspora of oh, okay. uh, kind of ex-Soviet people for sure. Yeah, um, so quite a few Ukrainians in my school and quite a few Russians in my school too. Okay, because I think of it as a, I I know Russians who go there now or like it just seems like, like vacation, one. vacation like maybe send their kids to school there. I don't know. It's just still. I didn't realize it was something that was happening. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, huge now. thing in the nineties and the early two thousands. Then it was they just Cyprus just made it easy easier for people for people to come and live if you you know if you could buy a flat and stuff and support yourself obviously. But um, they just didn't attracting investment, I suppose. Right. So yeah, so loads and loads of Russians, definitely. Um, when is when is Summer Kitchen going to be published? Do you know yet? Is that so a that's um, 
spring no 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 it's spring uh next year so in a year in a year's time okay that yeah it's with bloomsbury and they uh yeah they take uh they take uh their time kind of with um producing a cookbook which is quite nice actually to not to rush it mm-hmm. and to do it properly yeah well, yeah, and in the meantime, people can buy your other two books. Is, is there is there yeah. some place that you like to direct people? I, I know you have a pretty like substantial Instagram. Yeah, uh, my Instagram is olia.hercules, and um, yeah, just follow me if you if you like uh, Eastern European and actually world food, uh, and also travel uh, because I do travel a lot, especially around Eastern Europe. Always, always looking for recipes mm-hmm. and keep in touch. It's always it's always lovely to have a connection with people. Over Instagram, as I say, like so many people contributed to the book in way, one way or another. It's a wonderful community. I'm really lucky. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm really happy we finally got to talk to you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. So, thank you for being patient. I'm sorry it took so long. I wasn't like trying to be difficult. It was just like such a mad month. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for all the wonderful questions, and yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks so Thank much. You, okay, Olivia. we'll be in touch. Thank you soon. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. bye. That's the episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out both of Olya's current books, Mamushka and Caucasus, and we'll link to them in the episode description. Um, and keep your eyes peeled for her forthcoming book, Summer Kitchen, which will be coming out about a year from now. We'll probably remind if this thing still exists in a year. Um, as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Telegram at She's in Russia. Subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at She's in Russia.com, which has not got out this month, but it will go out sometime. Support us on patreon.com slash in Russia. Sayonara, suckers. Sayonara.